dismiss our kids to gospel project. And then I would also like to ask you if you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua, chapter 6. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 26. So, Joshua 6, verses 15 through 26. Replay. It's a blessing and a curse that comes with being a sports fan in an age of technology. We all know that referees and umpires make mistakes. The beauty of replay is that it has the power to set a bad call straight. Was was that a fumble or was the runner's knee down before he lost control of the ball? Did the receiver manage to get a foot in bounds or did he step out before he made the catch? Well, the blessing of replay is that it can help set that record straight. The curse of replay is that it turns every sports fan into a judge. And there's a reason that referees are usually accompanied by state troopers when they run on and off the field. Now, I've done my fair share of booing a referee's bad call, usually after a replay. But every once in a while, I am impressed with how well a referee actually does their job. Sometimes it is worth going back to watch a play in slow motion just to admire how a referee or an umpire was able to make the right call. And that's sort of what we're doing this morning in Joshua 6 as we look at verses 15 through 26. Uh, if, you were, if you were with us last week, you know uh, we made our way through most of this chapter, and we're going to be looking at some familiar territory again this, uh, this morning. We're going to rewind, and we're going to review the directions that God gave Israel for how they were supposed to deal with Jericho. We're going to look at how Israel actually carried those instructions out. And then we're going to take an in-depth view into what happened after the fighting was over. Now this review is important for a couple of reasons. First, there is no denying that the book of Joshua is brutal. The battle of Jericho is described, I think, in more detail than any other battle in this book. And while not every city in Canaan was destroyed like this, the battle of Jericho really sets a tone for the rest of the Canaanite conquest. And there's something to be learned here about God's prerogative, his right to rule and reign. And there's something to be learned from this about what true justice is. So we want to look at that this morning. As brutal as the book of Joshua may seem to our fallen human sensibilities, When we slow this passage down and take an in-depth look of what's going on here, we find that God's judgments are always right and that they're always good. Second, uh, taking time to review the battle of Jericho in its aftermath helps us to understand sin and its curse. We can read passages like Romans 6, 23, when it says the wages of sin is death, but Jacques. Joshua 6 shows us what that looks like in graphic detail. So we won't take sin seriously unless we see it from God's perspective. And the divine justice that was poured out on Jericho that day helps us to see how bad sin really is. Third, uh, by slowing down and looking at this passage again, we learn to trust God even when he wields his sword of judgment. 
We learn to trust God even as he wields his sword of judgment. More accurately, we learn to trust God's purposes of enforcing justice and his purpose of saving his people through his mighty acts. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading Joshua chapter 6, verses 15 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. On the seventh day... They rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been the spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the sword of God is sharp. It is deadly. It is also accurate and precise. When the commander of the army of the Lord thrust his sword into the heart of Jericho, it accomplished two things. First, it brought about righteous judgment and justice. And second, it showed perfect mercy and love. One act, two purposes. And this is an amazing thing. And it brings us to consider our main idea for this morning When God bears his sword of judgment, he enforces perfect justice, and he accomplishes the salvation of his people. When God bears his sword of judgment, he enforces perfect justice, and he accomplishes the salvation 
of his people. I have three points, three conclusions for you from this passage. Uh, if you have uh, the set of notes, then you should be able to see them there. Otherwise, uh, I'll read these out to you. First, we see that the judgments of the Lord are always right. The judgments of the Lord are always right. Second, we see that the curse of sin runs deep. The curse of sin runs deep. And finally, we see that God's mercy makes us hope in God's justice. God's mercy makes us hope in God's justice. I want to begin by looking at our, our first point here, that the judgments of the Lord are always right. We did a little review here. We saw that on the seventh day of the siege of Jericho, Joshua had important instructions for Israel from God. God fought for Israel at Jericho before Israel had ever encircled the city. God told Joshua and the people that he had given it into their hands uh, though they could only expect to have victory as long as they faithfully obeyed his directives. So these instructions are important. And in verse 16, Joshua reminds the people that the battle is to be fought God's way. Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Jericho was the first Canaanite stronghold that Israel encountered as they entered the Promised Land after they had crossed the Jordan River. God made it clear to Israel before he ever brought them over into Canaan that the blessings of Canaan were his to give to them. Israel was not going to obtain God's covenant promises because of their might or because of their will, but because the Lord was graciously giving it to them. It only makes sense then that the first fruits of the riches of the promised land should be dedicated to the Lord in recognition that while he was entrusting the land to them as a fulfillment of his covenant promises, it still belonged to him. Well, in verse 17, we see that Joshua tells, the, tells Israel that the city is to be de therefore devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, Joshua uses an important word here. I don't usually go to the original language or say the original language here, but it's helpful. Uh, the word he uses is the word haram. And the basic meaning of this is to devote something to God by surrendering it to him irrevocably. And it had to be done in such a way as to exclude it from man's use, usually by totally destroying it. The idea of devoting something to the Lord like this is explained for us in greater detail in Leviticus uh, chapter 27, verses 28 and 29, which says that anything that was devoted to the Lord in this way, and it uses this word, could not be redeemed. It was irrefutably God's, and it could not be wielded for anyone's personal gain or personal use because it was the Lord. And that applied to whether it was a man, beast, crop, um, or, or any sort of animal. That was now the Lord's property. When Joshua told the people that Jericho and everything in it was to be devoted to God in this way, he was carrying out God's instructions, and he was leading Israel in to, to keep the law of Moses. The battle was the Lord's, and so was the spoil of victory. Israel would receive the spoil from, uh, their, they would receive spoil from other cities, but Jericho specifically belonged to God with all that was in it. And so, in verse 18, we see that Joshua warns the people 
that if they keep anything for themselves from the city, the things that have been placed under this ban of destruction, they will find that they have made themselves a thing for destruction. And they will bring trouble upon themselves and on the whole camp of Israel. So to take of the spoil of the city was to steal from what was rightfully God's and this rightfully to invoke his anger. Now that's an important detail to remember next week as we get to chapter 7 and we find one man named Achan did not listen to Joshua. So store that away in your minds for next week. In the meantime... Uh, we, we want to look at verses 20 and 21. We see that there our author explains to us that after the walls of Jericho fell, the warriors of Israel rushed into the city, every man straight on before him. They captured the city and they devoted everything within it to destruction. The rules of engagement that day did not differentiate between combatants and non-combatants. Israel devoted the entire city to destruction according to the command of the Lord, received through Joshua, putting to death men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Nothing that drew breath in that city was allowed to live. Everything was devoted to destruction that day. Now, the brutality of verse 21 is unsettling. This is the kind of violence that we would condemn in any other context today. And we would rightly condemn it. It would be one thing to hear that Israel put to death all of the men of war of Jericho, but the women and the children too? Oxen, sheep, donkeys? We have a Christian duty to stand against genocide. You might be thinking that God is making a bad call here, that he was wrong. And that's why we need to hit the pause button, rewind this passage, and play it back in slow motion. As we do, we discover two things. We discover that the destruction that came on Jericho was God's just judgment. And we are reminded that all of God's judgments are right. So before we explore why this sort of order was justifiable, it's important that we, we, not, that we remember to not forget our place. We must settle our hearts, remembering first of all that God is God, that he sees things from a greater perspective than what we do, and that we are not God. What shall we say then? Paul asks in Romans 9, 14, when, when God shows mercy to one and justice to another. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul explains, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
So there, that's we need to remember our place. And Paul reminds us that of that in Romans 9. And as we now look at what's going on here in Jericho, there's, there's three things to keep in mind as we make, try to make sense of what was going on there. First, we must remember that God is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. Creation is God's to do with as he pleases. He does not owe anyone life. Life is a gift, not a right. Before we think to charge God of wrongdoing, we must recognize uh, with Job that the Lord gives life and the Lord takes life away. The fact that any one of us is alive at this moment is because of the overflow of God's mercy and grace and goodness towards you. The only response to that reality, the only right response to that reality is to say with Job, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Second, we must recognize how merciful God was to Jericho, especially in the days leading up to this destruction. Remember what God told Abraham after he told him that his, his, his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan in Genesis 15. He says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they served, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Israel did not come back to Canaan with this, with, with this conquest until the moment when God had said that the sin of Canaan was full. The hammer of God's wrath did not fall on the inhabitants of Jericho arbitrarily. It fell on them because of their sin. Paul explains in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Jerichoites had no excuse. The power of God was evident to them in the created world. They lived in a land flowing with milk and honey. But they chose to serve false gods, the idols of Baal. They sacrificed their children to demons. For 400 years, God spared the Canaanites in his mercy. But in that time, they only wandered further from God and pressed themselves deeper into sin. And though their hearts, as we saw in the report from Rahab, were gripped with fear when Israel was on their doorstep, they still would not repent. They stood with hardened hearts against God and his people. And so when the measure of their sin was full, God's wrath came down on them justly. The astonishing thing about what happened to Jericho isn't that it was destroyed in this way with the edge of the sword. The astonishing thing about what happened to Jericho is that it hadn't happened sooner. This was according to God's mercy and grace, which he spoke to Moses about on the holy mountain as he made his glory pass before Moses and declared his name, The Lord, the Lord, 
A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is is patient. God is long-suffering. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God to Ezekiel, and not rather that he would turn from his way and live? Even still, even though he desires that the wicked would return from their sin and live, God will not let unrepented wickedness go on forever. And so Jericho felt the sword of his wrath. I think that one of the reasons we are tempted to think that maybe God was unjust to command the slaughter of the Canaanites in this way is because in our limited understanding and, 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 and because of our experience of, of God's grace in this fallen world, we, we manage to take God's mercy and his love for granted. We, we begin, we may not say it, but we certainly behave as if God owes us, that he must forgive us. He does no wrong to the world when he judges it for sin. And we must remember that. God is free to do with his creation as he will. His actions towards his creation flow out of the excellence of his perfection. And therefore, everything that God does with his creation is right and it is good. It's astonishing that God shows this sort of grace and forbearance towards people like you and me. Jesus says that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He shows patience to cities like Jericho and Nineveh and towards nations like Rome and America. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The patience of God towards sinners like us is undeserved and it is costly having been purchased at the cost of Christ's own blood, we read in Romans 3. If we are tempted to think that God was wrong to command the destruction of Jericho, then I think we betray that we have too small a view of the excellence of who God is and the astonishing mercy that he shows towards rebels like us every day. The third thing we must consider in this is that we must grapple how God used Israel as the instrument of his holy justice. The world and all that is, the, that is in it is the Lord's to do with as he will. God had a special purpose for Israel and for the promised land. And through their sin, Jericho and the Canaanites had set themselves up in opposition to that purpose. When something was placed under a ban of destruction the way Jericho was, it was usually because it was seen to be impeding or resisting God's work. Deuteronomy 7 verses 2 through 6 indicate that Jericho and the other Canaanite peoples were put under this ban of destruction to prevent Israel from being lured away to follow other gods and thus becoming an object of God's wrath themselves. God had an important role for Israel to play in the story of salvation. He had set his his favor on that nation in a special way to make them a blessing to the whole world. 
He did not choose them because they had anything to offer him. After all, Moses warns the people in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust those people out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So as brutal as the destruction of Jericho may seem to us initially, when we replay the footage back and we see that God was punishing Jericho for their great sin, when we consider the great mercy and forbearance that God had toward them and toward all the people of Canaan, and then when we consider how God was executing his plan of redemption by bringing Israel into the land in the fulfillment of his covenant promises to the blessing of the whole world, then we're able to see that the destruction that fell on Jericho was indeed just and that it was good. It deserved far worse for its sin. And so do we. As a humbling thought, one that we should use to quiet our restless hearts. And it's in the quiet of submission to God's perfect sovereignty that we're ready to receive our second point, which is that the curse of sin runs deep. The curse of sin runs deep. When America and our coalition forces were preparing to invade Iraq, one of the major concerns facing our troops was that Saddam Hussein might try to use chemical and biological weapons against them. And so troops were issued chemical resistant suits and gas masks so that in the event that he did use them, they'd be protected. Well, before Joshua and the armies of Israel rushed into Jericho, Joshua had a protective command for his troops. In verse 18, he says, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Joshua's command was a warning. If the Israelites took what had been devoted to God for themselves, they would be taking its curse upon themselves as well. When Israel invaded Canaan, They were victorious because God fought for them. But they could not expect to receive God's blessing if they didn't obey his commands. Israel had told Joshua that they would obey him as they had obeyed Moses. But Joshua knew how fickle the people could be. He knew how tempting it was going to be for the soldiers of Israel to keep some of the spoils of war for themselves. That's why he warns them, as he does in verse 18. The curse of Jericho's sin was transferable. It was was contagious, like like a disease. The author of Hebrews tells us that the inhabitants of Jericho perished because of their disobedience and their faithlessness. Joshua knew that if the warriors of Israel violated the command to devote the city to the Lord, they would in turn bring the destruction of Jericho upon themselves because they would be joining the people of Jericho in their disobedience, and then they would perish under the same curse. You can see the extent of the curse that fell on Jericho. Uh, If you look at verse 26, we see that after the city had fallen, Joshua laid an oath on Israel, saying, "Cursed uh, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Well, Jericho was destroyed by God for his disobedience. 
It was devoted to the Lord. Joshua laid this oath on the people because uh, rebuilding Jericho, if someone were to rebuild Jericho, it would be like they were trying to undo what God had done. This was a, a cursed place because of sin. And the man who tried to rebuild the city would bear the effects of that curse we see on himself and on his family. 1 Kings 16 tells us that, in fact, the wicked king Ahab did just that. In verse 33, we read that Ahab did more evil to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. One of the ways mentioned of how he provoked God to anger was by rebuilding Jericho. And in that chapter, we we read that because he did not fear the curse that Joshua laid on Jericho, uh, he built it at the cost of his two sons, Abiram, his firstborn, and his youngest, Segob. The curse of sin runs deep. Joshua's command of the people to keep themselves, to insulate themselves from the things that had been devoted to destruction was intended to keep the people from that curse, to, to isolate them from the trouble that Jericho had brought upon itself through its disobedience. Unless we view sin as the cursed thing that it is, we will always find an attraction to it within ourselves. James uh, tells us in James 1, verses 13 through 15, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And, when, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is the curse of sin. It runs deep. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, there has been an attractiveness to sin that lives within each and every one of us. The curse of sin runs deep. And so Joshua's warning to the people was meant to spare them from the death that sin brings. If we are to see sin for the cursed thing that it is, and if we are then to resist it, we must learn to put off the old desires for sin, and we must embrace by faith the life that has become ours through the work of Christ Jesus. Paul told the church in Colossae, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The Scottish reformer uh, John Owen famously wrote in his book, The Mortification of Sin and Believers, You must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Because there is still a part of us that finds sin attractive, we are not always keen on seeing sin for the cursed thing that it is. Unless we are actively putting those desires to death, insulating ourselves from it by seeking the things that are above with Christ, we will always be in danger of contaminating ourselves with it. We must take to our hearts the way Joshua and the Israelites took to Jericho, making it wholly devoted unto God. 
Now, the destruction of Jericho teaches us that sin is a cursed thing. It shows us that God is right to judge sinners. But there's more to the story of Jericho than just God's punishment. It's also a story of rescue. And that brings us to our third point this morning, that God's mercy makes us hope in God's justice. This is actually a message of hope and salvation that teaches us that those who trust in the salvation of the Lord have no need to fear his sword of justice. For the saints of God, the sword of justice is the sword of our salvation for those who have received God's mercy by faith. And so God's justice gives us reason to hope. After seeing how right God is to judge, how brutal the curse of sin is, I know it sounds strange to think that God's people should hope in God's justice. But that's just the message of God's gospel to the world. And it's a message that becomes clear to us as we look specifically at how God rescued Rahab even as he judged Jericho for its sin. Now Rahab, you may remember from uh, Joshua chapter 2, was a prostitute in Jericho. Her house was built into Jericho's wall. And uh, she hid two Israelite spies from the king of Jericho's men. And then for for her hospitality, she asked them to spare her and her family. Rahab knew that God was giving Israel the land. So she sought mercy from God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that though all of Jericho perished for their disobedience, Rahab and her household were saved because of her faith. Here's the interesting thing about Rahab. Although Rahab is commended for her faith, she was not rescued from Jericho before the battle. She had to wait. Rahab had to live in a city that was doomed for destruction. And she had to cling to the faith that had been given to her, the promise that she would indeed be spared. As as Rahab watched the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord circle the city with the silent troops of Israel, she had to trust that the spies would be true to their word, that God would show her mercy, and that they would honor the scarlet cord that hung from her window. On the seventh day, When the horns sounded and the people shouted and the walls came tumbling down, it was a day of destruction for all who lived in Jericho. But for Rahab, that day was a day of mercy and rescue and salvation. The sword of the Lord had two edges that day. One edge was an edge of justice. The other edge was an edge of salvation. Make no mistake, Rahab and her family absolutely deserve to be consumed with God's wrath that day. And she is called by her sin, right? She's a prostitute. She had committed immorality. But she was rescued. She and her family, they were redeemed. And so it is for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. The battle of Jericho is a warning that God, for all his patience, will one day judge the world and everyone in it will stand to account for everything that we have done. Sin's curse runs deep. Dead hearts, we are told, will endure the second death of God's wrath in hell. 
But when the sword of the Lord falls on that final day, it will be wielded for yet another purpose, a glorious purpose, the very salvation of the people of God, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, redeemed by his faithful sacrifice, and joined to him by faith. As Hebrews 9 says, as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin because he's already paid that sacrifice, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. So the story of Rahab points us to that day. It teaches us to hope in God's just judgment. And it does that in three ways. First, it teaches us to find contentment in the purposes of God when we find ourselves in the midst of every affliction and uncertainty. The Bible does not promise that those who trust the Lord will not suffer. The gospel is not a way to get out of affliction. Rather, Jesus says that we are blessed when we are troubled. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Rahab knew that she was in a dangerous position. She lived in the very walls of Jericho. The walls that came tumbling down. She feared for her life. She feared the wrath of the living God. And she cried out to him in faith. And her faith was recognized. But she was not whisked out of the window In the moments prior to the battle, she was there in her home when the walls came tumbling down. She heard the screams. She smelled the dust. Her rescue was accomplished by this very same act that brought about Jericho's doom. That's something to think about. Noah lived in a world of sin. He and his family were rescued from it But it was through the flood that they were rescued. Lot lived in the city of Sodom. And we are told that his soul was in agony as he saw the wickedness around him. He lost everything he owned, even his own wife when she turned back to look. And though he and his daughters were were spared, he, he, he had to run away. God spared his life. Jesus has spoken plainly about the justice that is coming down on this world. If the Lord knew how to rescue Noah, and if he knew how to rescue Lot, if he knew how to rescue Rahab and her family from the coming judgment of Jericho, 
he also knows, we are told, how to rescue the godly from their trials. My imagination, if if yours is like mine, my imagination has been running wild over the past month about the possibility of what what is going to happen on Tuesday. Maybe your heart fears what is about to come. There's a great deal of uncertainty. When we look at our nation, I don't think any one of us is under the impression that we are deserving of God's blessings of a godly leader. I find the story of Rahab's rescue so comforting right now because it reminds me that though God may afflict His people with various trials, He only does so as a ministry of His mercy to perfect us and to sanctify us in the holiness and holiness unto God and to bless us as the people of Christ. Jesus warned his disciples in the hours leading up to his crucifixion that we will have trouble in this world. But then he says this, Take heart. I have overcome the world. Affliction of the believer is not like the affliction that comes on the world. The affliction that comes on the world comes on the world as judgment. It drives them deeper into the curse of sin. But the affliction of the people of God drives them deeper into Him. We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul writes, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but never forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Rahab lived through the battle of Jericho. She was whisked away to safety even as the walls crumbled down around her. The difference of her suffering in Jericho from the suffering that fell on the rest of the city is that while they suffered for their unrepentance, Rahab's affliction resulted in her becoming a part of God's chosen people. Indeed, we read in verse 25 that she and her father's household and everyone who was in her house was saved alive and that she went on to live in the land of Israel all the rest of her days. The story gets even more interesting when we look ahead to the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew and we find that God, in his wisdom, chose not just to redeem Rahab from the destruction of Jericho, but he wove her into the greater story of redemption, tying her in as the great-great-grandmother of King David, whose throne was then elevated in an even greater way through the work of King Jesus. How astonishing is that? The path of Rahab's life involved suffering. But God blessed her and brought her into the great big story of how he was redeeming the world through Christ. Rahab lived in a place of sin. She herself was a sinner. But God is a greater Savior. And he made her a blessing to the whole world. Who are we to look at the future and fear and agonize on what sort of things lie before us in the months ahead? Even tomorrow. It is more blessed to suffer for the sake of King Jesus than it is to be comfortable on the path that leads to destruction and divine justice. God has great, great 
things in store for his people, things that are greater than we are able to imagine. We must, as Rahab did, learn to trust God's perfect purposes so that even if we see the sword, we know that it comes on us not in judgment, but as our deliverance because the sword of our judgment has already fallen on our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The story of Rahab also has the effect of leading us to the cross where God's justice and his grace meet. The old hymn, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy hand is one bowed thy head is one of my favorites because of the way it captures the awe of God's justice as it was poured out on Jesus for us. It says, Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings dropped for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade, must slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. God's sword has two edges. With one side, he afflicts justice and judgment on the the unrepentant, and on the wicked, and with the other, he severs his people's bondage to sin. The afflictions of Christ on the cross atone for the sins of his people once and for all. And for his humble obedience, God the Father has exalted him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will one day return to rescue his people and to judge the world. Rahab was rescued by an act of God's great grace, just as all who trust in the work of Jesus have been rescued by the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. Rahab brings us to the cross, not only as an ancestor standing in the genealogy of Jesus, but because she was a recipient of the same grace that you and I are. Because the reason God was just to extend pardon to her and to her family, it's because Jesus paid for that divine forbearance and he purchased the mercy of God at at the cost of his own blood. The cross is a brutal, ugly thing. And yet for those who have been rescued by the precious blood of Jesus, it is the most precious thing because that's where the debt I owed to God for my sin was paid in full. That's where the victory that won my rescue was paid. That is where I died with Christ to sin so that I might live with him in heaven forever. Friend, can you say that for yourself? I pray that you can. Do you know that the blood of Christ was shed for you? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. That verse is true because of the cross. Third, Rahab teaches us to hope in the righteousness that comes by faith. One writer, Dan Doriani puts it well when he says the gospel is incoherent without God's just judgment. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The gospel that the righteous shall live by faith isn't an abstraction. It is God's answer to his own wrath. 
God is merciful and withholds the justice we deserve if we accept his remedy for sin, repentance and faith in Jesus, who exhausted the punishment we deserve, forgives us, and lets us join Rahab on the Lord's side. Rahab was rescued from Jericho because he trusted in a merciful God, the Lord of all the earth. God saved her from the curse of sin and from a cursed city. She was counted righteous because of her faith, not because of her works. And with it being the Sunday after Reformation Day, um, I know Emily already mentioned, each song has been meant to communicate one of the five points of the five solas. Um, We've sung about five core doctrines that have come to define the biblical doctrines of what they stand for. And at the pinnacle of that is this truth. That righteousness before God is not a result of our work. And it's not a result of our working in tandem with God's grace to earn righteousness. Righteousness is received by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the word of God, to the glory of God alone. What a blessing to know that the righteous judge of all the earth judges us by the righteousness of Christ we truly do have a reason to rejoice this morning and to hope in the mercy and the justice of God. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, what sorrows bowed thy head on that day. You felt the full weight of our sin and the full weight of the righteous wrath of God, which God has revealed in heaven against all wickedness and ungodliness. And yet for love's sake, you drank up the cup that was reserved for us so that we could hope in God's just mercy and we could know you and love you as you made us to do. Father, as we as we come now to celebrate through remembrance that act of righteousness, that act of redemption, I pray that you would impress in us this day a hope that stands against every other hope, a hope that endures, a hope that we can set our seal to, an eternal hope. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing our last song. Mighty fortresses are God. Oh,
At this point in the service, uh, we've arrived at our time to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is a sober but joyful celebration of the work of King Jesus when he went to the cross to pay for our sins at the cost of his own blood. The bread and the cup correspond to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus as a reminder that God is just and that he is also merciful. We know love because he loved us and gave what was most dear to him so that we might have eternal life through faith in Jesus, our exalted king. These physical elements correspond and represent the the spiritual relationship that exists between Jesus and his people. It's not as if uh, the bread or the cup turned to the actual body and blood of Jesus, for he was sacrificed once for sin, and we are united to him by faith. And still, these physical elements have a, have a way of representing the effective work of Christ and the relationship that we have with him if we've been united to him by faith. So let this supper be a reminder that we serve the God who never fails his promises, 
Let it be a reminder of Jesus' commission to his church and his promise that he will be with us always. Now, this does come with a warning. Jesus gave the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be celebrated by baptized believers who are trusting in Jesus for their salvation in remembrance of him. It is a picture of the believer's fellowship with Jesus and faith, participating in his death and in his life. So if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus and submitting to him as your Lord today, and if you've not been united to him in baptism, this ordinance is not for you. We are so glad that you are here, but we urge you to take this time to consider your own need for Christ. Now Jesus came to the earth to serve, not to be served. And he calls us, likewise, as his people, to service and humility towards each other. So this morning, as an expression of that, uh, rather than coming to the front to receive the elements, uh, if you would please remain in your seat as the elements are passed out to you. And I would ask that you would use this time to consider Jesus' service and to prepare your heart to receive the elements. As you do receive them uh, this morning, as you receive the bread, I would ask you that you would take time to consider the body of Jesus that was broken for your sin. He took the judgment that you and I deserved so that you and I could be made right with God. And then go ahead and take the bread as a symbol of your own individual unity with Jesus. When it comes time to take the juice, I would just ask that you would please wait. Um, It's our tradition now that um, we take that together as a symbol of the covenant that unites us together with him and to each other as a church. A covenant that was established by the shedding of his own blood. As we prepare to take the supper, let's begin by once again going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to come to you this morning with reverence, with fear that is due you, but also we come before you boldly, knowing that you are you call our, you call yourself our beloved Father, and you call have called us your children, and that you have you have given us um, this uh, this supper as a representative of what you have secured in Christ on the cross. And I pray, Father, that as we receive these elements, that you would, um, that your spirit would help to cement our hope and our faith in you, and that we would delight in you with our whole heart. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, we read that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blood of the covenant that unites us to you eternally and to one another as your body here on earth. We pray, Father, that we would take that calling seriously and that we would live in the joy of the gospel. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Father, we thank you for the enduring hope of the gospel. And we look forward to the day, O Lord, when you will come to rescue your people and to judge the world. Father, you have taught us to hope in your justice, for it is your justice that has secured our salvation. And I pray, Father, that in the meantime, that we would use the time you have given us to accomplish the work that you have given us, to, to share the message of the gospel with others, and to be the body of Christ here on earth. I pray this all in the name of Jesus and to his glory. Amen. If you would please stand for the singing of the doxology as we exalt God for his salvation. Praise God from whom all blessings.
sing slow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace. Oh, 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 oh,